Growing in the woods of northern Minnesota in the upper Great Lakes region is a special tree. One that for centuries has been incredibly useful for making things and an indispensable resource for cultures that lived in the areas where it grew. That tree is the birch. Northhouse Folk School in Grand Marais, Minnesota is situated next to the Superior National Forest, rich in birch trees, and teaches classes on making objects out of birch bark. One of their instructors is Beth Homa Krauss, known to many as Birch Bark Beth. She's an accomplished birch weaver who takes the craft in new directions and frequently takes students out into the woods to harvest the bark right it's off the tree. both beneficial for me because it's kind of like I'm doing a Tom Sawyer thing and having people paint my fence by sending them up trees and getting bark for me. But it's also very educational. They get to learn about how to correctly harvest trees. A lot of the people have land themselves and plan on doing it on their land. Birch bark has properties like strength, flexibility, and water resistance that makes it uniquely well-suited to traditional craft. That's because the biology of the birch is much different than other common trees. John Zazada explains why. He's a former federal silviculturist who has become a master birch basket weaver in retirement. Between the wood and the bark, there's a layer called the cambium. And that's what makes wood to the inside and bark to the outside. Okay, you move out a little bit further in the bark layer, and there's another layer called the cork cambium. All trees have this cork cambium, but it's organized in a continuous circle around the circumference of a birch tree, and there's no, really no other tree that we have around here we can do that with. It's important to note that you can't just go out and take bark off of any birch. Krauss obtains permits from the Department of Natural Resources to harvest on approved plots of state land, usually ones involved in timber sales for lumber. She can go in and remove bark before loggers take the trees. Also, there is a very small window of time in which the bark can be removed. When the tree is, you know, in full leaf and pumping a lot of water, it becomes very fragile as it forms a new layer of bark, and it's that fragile layer at just this two or three week time of the year that allows the harvest of these sheets of bark. The bark is easily removed but takes a careful hand not to harm the tree. And I do uh, an arrow cut I call it and you can go pretty deep the tree will heal itself and as you do it this is going to tell you how deep the bark is and if the bark's ready and this is already removing itself so this tree is totally ready and you can feel in there it's wet um, it's pretty early in the season so it's not popping as much uh, it usually will pop probably next week i'm gonna take this tree i'm gonna do it and it'll be pretty quick and easy to go around the tree I, I like to teach how to sustainably harvest in a way that doesn't damage the tree uh, beyond repair um, so that the tree can replenish its bark uh, and continue to grow. Um, but also, it's like this like beautiful, primal experience for people where they start to really then think about like where things come from. Because when you get inside of a tree and you remove that bark, you have this like experience with nature that's very uh, personal and intense and 
you're carrying when you're hauling this material and it's heavy some bark can get really heavy and you're hauling it out of the woods you're thinking like man this isn't something you could go and buy at walmart or joanne fabrics or like any craft store or on amazon really like this is how you get materials and this material will make many many things like canoes or backpacks or ornaments and all sorts of things and it really makes people think like where things come from Is that about as deep as you'd go? Then? Yep. Wait, let me see. Oh yeah. Um, uh, a little softer. Even a little less. A little less, okay. but that that's fine. You didn't hurt the tree. Instantly, the tree starts to crack too. So then I would say go below the branch, cut down. But let's see if we can get all the way to the bottom and see if we can get a really long. Nice. If done properly, a birch tree can fully regrow its bark and remain healthy. The same tree can be harvested two or three times in its lifetime. Another instructor, Kyle Lindy Lind, says that's what makes birch bark so appealing. And very few things in our modern material culture are as renewable or sustainable as bark from trees. I, I think it's, it's, it's admirable when you think about a world where everything that we surround ourselves in our lives uh, will one day be garbage that when the birch bark canoe is done and its life is over, it will just degrade and turn back into another forest. Lind was one of four people constructing an Ojibwe-style canoe in one week for the wooden boat show at North House this spring. Lind says he wants to demystify the construction of the canoe. Uh, we're building a 13-foot uh, Ojibwe long-nose ricing canoe. And it's just a traditional form that was used on a lot of the small inland lakes and especially designed to to be able to be moved through the rice beds without damaging the rice. Yeah, it was just essential to be able to tra- travel via water. And here we've got you know thousands upon thousands of miles of, of waterways. And if you couldn't move efficiently up and down them, you're going to have a really hard time surviving. Lindy says traditionally a whole family would come together to work on one canoe, taking about six days to build one. But building a canoe is very different than weaving a backpack or wallet. It starts with the bark. Different qualities are better suited to being used for different objects. So I went out harvesting with Lindy, Lindy Lind, and he was looking for uh, canoe bark, which is different than the type of bark I'm looking for. He's looking for bark that won't delaminate where I want bark that delaminates because I'm going to peel it apart anyways to make materials and weave with it. But if it delaminates to every single sheet, that's not good quality bark. You know, canoe makers are really fussy, you know, because they're making something that's going to, their life's going to depend on it, you know. And so they look for really flexible bark. They look for bark with not a lot of lentils. You know, they look for good, thick bark. And uh, whereas weaving, we can get by with, with a much wider variety of bark quality. And just as the type of birch bark used can change between crafts, Zazada notes it can also differ between cultures. There's a lot of similarities, but then there's a lot of differences too, you know, and the one that always, you know, interests me to a degree is, you know, what? why was it that the Ojibwe here, you know, mainly used sheets of bark that they folded and cut and sewed together? Their canoes, all their, many of their baskets and that sort of stuff, they were all not woven, you know, whereas the Scandinavians, you know, they use sheets of bark too, but 
the big part of their culture, as I understand it, you know, was a weaving culture. And it probably had to do with the properties of the bark and all this sort of stuff. Instructor Jared Dahl may have an answer. There's all different types and dimensions of birch across the world, hence different-looking items. The natives didn't really weave it much. They had large diameter trees, and so a lot of folding baskets. And the birch bark canoe, of course. And again, big sheets of bark. Um, You know, Scandinavia, they have birch, and they have small canisters, no bark canoes, because they didn't have big trees. The material dictates design, you know, (laughs) the size of the bark. Yeah, everywhere around the world where birch grows, it is like the, the tree. You know, it provides a lot. Dahl teaches a class that not only focuses on the bark, but making things out of all parts of the tree, including the wood. One tree is felled to make bowls and spoons and containers and more. And as we found in the last installment of this series, there's a philosophy behind that. You know, these things tie us to the land, you know, as material culture is. It's, it's vernacular craft, it's birch using the forest around us to make the things we need for our daily lives. I mean, that's that's what I that's all these things are. You know, the first time I went out into the woods to to fell a birch tree to harvest its bark and split the staves into snowshoe um, stock, it was just a, a sense that I'd done it before, even though I'd never ever done it in my life. And time just kind of slipped away, and um, I was totally engrossed in the activity, and it and it just just felt felt right. But uh, genetic memory, yes, just the need to do this stuff. And once you do it and you experience that, that the power of it, it's a lot harder to go back to, uh, I think, normal life. Lind is not the only one who experiences this while using his hands and natural materials. I, I often say that when I'm weaving a basket, I have ghost hands that are guiding me. It's the, the ghosts of past birch bark weavers that are guiding my hand as I try to weave a basket, you know, in that. And to me, I honor that, you know, because I honor the people that, that did this for a living and it was a critical part of their, of their lives. Um, I feel like it's important to keep the tradition going. Um, it's important to, like, expand it and try new things and share it with people because... People get a lot of satisfaction from making things from their hands. From the tree to hands, weaving and folding across continents, birch bark transformed the cultures which called its forests home. And now, for those who still harvest, it's helping them find a place of their own. There's nobody that would have ever, myself included, guessed that I would have followed the path that I followed from when I started birch bark weaving. It didn't exist in my life. For the, you know, for about for the first 10 years after I retired, it pretty much consumed my life. And it just transformed, um, you know, the way I viewed the forest. That's unique and very special, I think, about this material culture. And every region has has resources like that, and when we learn to identify those resources, um, not only are we being more sustainable when we use them responsibly, but we're also making those places our home. For WTIP, I'm Will Moore. This series is produced in partnership between WTIP, North Shore Community Radio, 
and North House Folk School to build community awareness in the folk arts. Music in this piece was performed by Skylar Hawkins.